welcome to the Sweat Elite Podcast. This is Matt, and I've got my colleague Tate Herps with me. Hey guys. This is episode number 30. Thanks for tuning in. Our guest on this episode is undisputed king of the mountain, arguably king of the trails, Kilian Jornet. And Tate is with me in the introduction today because Tate conducted the interview with Kilian last week over Skype. And before we get into talking about the interview that you did with Kilian Tate, it'd be good for you to share with the listeners a little bit about your background and what you do at Sweat Elite. Yeah, so I mean, I've recorded a couple of the interviews lately, uh, but I've also been writing for Sweat for a few years now and been involved in some of the trips that we've done to Kenya and Ethiopia and just now in Japan. Um, I'm also yeah, very into trail and ultra running. Uh, it's been a bit of a obsession or passion of mine for the last few years. Um, so today was a, you know, a real honor to be able to speak to someone that's been a massive inspiration and idol of mine. I was very nervous going into it, I have to say, but I think that Killian and I covered a lot of stuff that you guys will really enjoy. And I yeah, had a great time speaking with him and learning so much. Yeah, I've listened to the recording, obviously, and it's um, definitely one of our better interviews, in my opinion. And uh, I guess before we transition to the interview with Kilian that you conducted, Tate, it'd be good to talk about some of the highlights that um, from the interview that you did with him and I guess maybe some of the things that you, that you learned. Yeah, sure. I mean, a lot. There was a lot that we covered. We are actually splitting the podcast into two parts because it went for quite a while. Killian was very generous with his time and told us a lot of really interesting things. Uh, the guy is a legend. Uh, people, I guess, in the running world look at his running and see that as a lot of what he does, but they don't often realize that, I mean, he sees himself more as a, I guess, a mountaineer and alpine athlete and running is just part of how he moves himself through the mountains. He's also a world champion in ski mountaineering. And in addition to winning you know, all the ultra and trail races that people really care about, yeah. I mean, all the big ones. Um, all, yeah. all the big ones. All the major ones. Yeah. Um, he's also done these massive expeditions and FKT, fastest known time attempts uh, on some of the biggest mountains in the world, which we got into. So we've split the recording into two parts. The first is mainly revolving around his expeditions and you know, he climbed Everest twice in a week without oxygen or ropes. Uh, that was a big part of what we covered. And I guess also his relationship to risk and fear. That was really interesting, that part, yeah. I yeah. enjoyed that. I learned a bit there as well. Yeah, and the, and the second part mainly goes into the training. So we'll bring that to you guys next week. But from the first part of this podcast that we went through, I think you know, speaking to him about his adventures and misadventures on Everest was incredible he relayed off all these terrifying things that happened to him and he was you know on his way up Everest suffering from gastroenteritis and couldn't take in food in he set the record still 26 hours from base camp up to the top Um, and then just the thought process where he then decided to 
climbed the mountain again a few days later yeah. just because he had some time. That wasn't planned, was it, originally? No, no. He, he did it because he, he was feeling so crappy on the first ascent with his sickness um, and he had some time at base camp at the end so he decided to go back up, got lost on the way back down and had a complete blackout where he essentially came to in the middle of a face on a technical down climb. And so just speaking with him about how he thinks through those situations and, you know, he he kept his cool in what to most people would be utterly terrifying. Uh, it was yeah, amazing to hear about all of that. He said, on the mountains, emotions are the worst enemy and that a lot of the time bad decisions come from either fear or euphoria. And I found it yeah, fascinating that as an outside observer to watch the stuff that he's doing just put sweat on your palms and it's terrifying but he said you know he is generally feeling like he's within his limits and that if he is scared that's when he's overstepped his boundaries and you know it, it's quite rare that he puts himself in that position yeah, there were some very interesting points there, and it's only a small amount of the things that you covered in the interview. Yeah, speaking with Killian was awesome. Uh, he told so many amazing stories, and I think you guys are going to really enjoy this conversation that I had with Killian. Hey. Good morning, Killian. Hey, how are you doing? Yeah, good, thank you. Welcome to the Sweat Elite podcast. Oh, thank you for having me there. No, it's something we've been looking forward to for quite a while and we're very happy when you said that you were happy to come and share with us. Uh, there's so much that I want to get into today uh, about your training and your background and all of these incredible feats that you've achieved. So with the current lockdown that's happening in places around the world, you've been putting up a lot of stuff online and raising funds for COVID. Uh, but you've, I know you've also in the past spent quite a lot of time resting due to injury and not being able to go out and spend so much time out in the mountains. So what is one of the things that you've been, you've you found most valuable from having some more quiet time and time away from hard training? Well, I, I would say it's different. Like if I, quiet time and, and to have time away from our training uh like i love quiet time like uh that's probably why why i love more to go to the mountains and and especially to go to expeditions like when you go to, to high mountains that you are like one one and a half month without like any social media or like without any uh yeah things to do other than like climbing uh, so that that's uh, I I really appreciate and I think it's it's important this this first time to 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 think what we do to think uh, yeah just uh, the lifestyle we have the to replan and, and now for example like to think okay uh, uh, when uh, yeah to rethink the training to rethink the methods but also to rethink like. Uh, I think uh, this crisis, the COVID, the, the COVID crisis, it's it shows up uh, many strengths and many vulnerabilities that we have as a as um, humans, and and I think uh, 
it will be, I, I hope it's an opportunity to rethink what will be our future thinking about the climate crisis that it's it's going to be like the next challenge or the challenge for the next generation. And I think, I hope that this this pause time it make us, yeah, just to to be able to rethink about all of that. And then like the training, I, I, I think it's different because like if you are home and pause, you have more time to train. So normally it's the opposite, like when you have like less um uh solicitations and things like that it's easier to train hard so now it's it's kind of the case but um yeah when you go from injuries i think it's it's a bit the same like it just to take the opportunity of the time down to to study more and to to just say okay i i am resting now but uh when i will go back to training i will do better for now i'd love to talk a little bit about your background. So I think listeners probably have been aware of you and what you're doing for a while. If not uh, beforehand, then after your double ascent of Everest in one week, which is incredibly impressive. Um, But could you tell us a little bit about how you got into all of this, the the mountain sports that you're doing? Because you're not just running, uh, you're a you know, complete mountain athlete, and I feel like you've you you run as a byproduct of trying to get to the mountains as fast as possible, or just enjoying the mountains. So, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, actually, it's uh, I I had no choice. Like uh, my parents were both like uh, mountain enthusiasts, so uh, when we were um, kids, we were living in a mountain hut in the Pyrenees. And uh, and everything we did, the weekends, the holidays, and, and after school was to go to the mountains. So we started like that. It was a game like uh, going to climb 3,000 meter summits in the Pyrenees, then like 4,000 summits in the Alps, uh, crossing the Pyrenees, uh, and, and doing these kind of things was all our holidays. So uh, I think uh, me and my sister, we were raised to, to be in the outdoors and to enjoy mountaineering. And competition, uh, we did some like uh, cross-country skiing, racing when when kids, because uh, in the hut it was like cross-country slope, so it was just natural. Uh, but uh, I started seriously training at 13 years old uh, for ski mountaineering. Um, so actually, from racing in the ski mountaineering, uh, in the summer I was uh, training, uh, running, doing trail running. So uh, after a couple of years, I started to do both seasons. Uh, at the beginning, it was mostly to run as a training for the winter season. And yeah, I think in 2007, it started to be like both, yeah, both seasons, like full time. Okay. And so uh, you got into the trail racing quite young and ultras especially. Uh, was your first major race UTMB? Is that the trail running race? Sorry. Well, like probably like uh, in it was my first race that it was uh, very mediatic on on the ultra scene. But actually, the year before UTMB, I, I had won the Sky Running World Series and uh, already like been like a world champion in um in ski mountaineering. So uh, actually, for me, it, like at that point, yeah, it, it was a race with a lot of media attention. 
but in terms of uh, competition and in terms of like um, fight or or yeah all this uh, I I didn't felt that it was like the major race uh, because like the years before probably I was already in this uh, kind of yeah training and racing uh, mood uh, with uh, with the competitions. But you were really young at that point, 21, I believe, and it was. During the race, I heard you speaking about in another podcast, you were essentially apprehended by the organizers because they didn't believe that you could be going so quickly. Could you tell us about what happened there? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny story. Um, actually, I, I think the, the ultra, ultra trail war in, in Europe especially was, was very close. It was always the same racers. It was mostly like uh, older people that was... Um, uh, racing, uh, not, not only like winning races, but uh, participating. So actually, they didn't know anything about other sports uh, like mountain running or like ski mountaineering that they are very similar, but they they had not. Uh, it was not connected at that point, so it was a surprise for them probably. So actually, uh, yeah, they, they kind of stopped me in every other station to check if I had all the gear to tell me what's going on and. And to see if I was cheating, so it was not that fun uh, for me as experience. Like I, I was thinking that running in the mountains it was something different than this. But uh, at the end, like uh, yeah, I I finished the race, and and even if it was not a, a great experience on like this connection with the organization or or with the the race, uh, uh, yeah, it was it was cool. But um, I think. It's that's the the micro climate of of uh, of the sport. It was very reduced at the moment, so they couldn't see someone going coming from another sport or like from another distance to win the races. Even if like in US, uh, we I think it was the same year that uh, Kyle Skaggs uh, uh, won the Hard Rock, and he was also very young. Or uh, we 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 saw like uh, in in. In Europe, like the year before, I was uh, winning the Gamma, that it's a mountain marathon or, or Grigne. So I think it was more like they didn't show like people coming from other places to, to be in the race. Mm, okay. And so, so I've watched the Path to Everest film that you've put out, and it's a beautiful film. I really recommend that everyone check it out. Um, and... Also, you've got your new book coming out about, uh, it's called Above the Clouds, and that speaks about the Summits of My Life project. So uh, in the film, the Everest film, it shows you at, I think, about 24. So after this UTMB race, you went on to win a lot of the major races in the trail and ultra scene, and you wanted to move on to something different and you seemed a bit disenfranchised with the whole racing scene. Could you tell us what was going through your mind then and what the whole project represents to you? Yeah, it was, uh, as you said, in um, the, the project started, uh, I believe, in, yeah, in 2012. And uh, actually, it's true that um, uh, in 2011, I... I kind of achieved all the big goals I wanted to achieve on my career, and I was like 20, 22 or, or so. And um, 
And yeah, I, I was like projecting myself on like, okay, at the age of 40 years old, I I would dream to have won these races, like UTMB and Zegama and Cercinal and Western States and whatever. So uh, actually when that it came so early, it was kind of a, a moment where like motivation was low because it's like, okay, what what's next? And, and um yeah, I, I, I'm not someone that likes to do the same thing all all the time, all over and, and do another time. I, I like to do different things. And and I think uh that was the moment to go back to the to the background to to what what uh I am and that, that was like to go to the mountains. I were race uh climbing more than running. Uh so uh, it was to go back to to this uh to this thing and and it was just logical for me to take all the knowledge from the year racing, like to go fast, to go light, and this style, and to put into what I really like to do, that is to go to mountains. So that's how the Summits of My Life project started. When I started the project, I was like really like coming from a racing mindset. So it was okay, this summit, like uh, Mont Blanc, uh, Pierre-André Goblet has a five-hour, ten record, or like a Matterhorn. Bruno Bruno has been going up and down in like uh, three hours, 14 minutes, and, and I wanted to beat these times. Uh, and it was just to to train and to prepare to beat these times. Uh, and it was uh, through the, the preparation and through the, the activities that they did to to train for it. So like going to the mountain with uh, people like Jordi Tosas, uh, people like Jordi Corominas or Sam Montas, uh, Vivian Bruchet, that I started to to just learn and, and evolve as um as an alpinist I would say and at the end of the project this mindset of like going okay that's the time to beat and I want to beat so I prepare for it uh, it, it came to to a point that it was okay I want to climb this mountain by fair means with only what my body can do so like not any kind of assistance not any kind of um, uh, equipment in the mountain, uh, not any, yeah, so kind of putting the the style in front of the, the time. And at the end, like uh, going fast, it was just a consequence of of this uh, way to go, of going uh, light and of going, uh, uh, yeah, on this style. And the, the whole project culminated in the Everest climb. I'd love for you to tell us a bit about the whole experience. Uh, I've read quite a bit and seen what happened in the film but for listeners um it you know it's a crazy thing that you've done you went up from not just base camp but the village before it went to the summit had some health issues up on the way and then later in the same week decided to climb again uh could you tell us about the whole experience it was a great great adventure actually and uh we'd been in in everest like two times before so we went there in 2015 uh then was a earthquake in nepal so we we didn't go to the mountain we were like staying to to help down in in the in the country and then like we went the year after in the in the summer uh we were the only expedition in the mountain what was beautiful it was amazing but uh, it was a lot of avalanches so uh we stopped at uh, 8000 meters uh it was pretty dangerous uh, and finally, in 2017, I uh, was back in the mountain, and it was a very short expedition, 
Um, I was in Shoyu, that it's a mountain close by the week before, and then I spent only, I think it was only like uh, 18 days in Everest in total. Um, so, yeah, uh, basically I arrived acclimatized, and, um, and after like a few days uh, just in the, in the lower part of the mountain and training a bit, uh, I went for, um, for one, one go. And as you said, like I started in Rombuk, which is the village uh, or where the road ends uh, in the feet of Everest. So that's like 25 kilometers from the feet of the mountain. So it's a long run uh, until you start properly climbing. Um, what it makes is, is not, it don't add difficulty because it's just like a long, uh, yeah, a long run in a moraine. But uh, it makes that uh, when you start climbing, you are more tired and you have been carrying like uh, the backpack with the boots and the access and everything. So it, it makes a bit of challenge on the endurance side. Um, so actually, I started then and I was feeling good. But uh, at the time I arrived at uh, 7,005, 6,000 meters, um, I started to feel that I had like something going on on my stomach. So I had a gastroenteritis and the thing is like, it's pretty far. Like I was there, I say, okay, this summit isn't that far. It's like only like 1000 meters of elevation. Um, and I really don't want to do this 25 K like a run again another day. So it was like, okay, should I just go down and try another day or just to try? And then uh, actually when you are up there is more like, what you think is like, is this going to kill me? If it's a yes, then you turn around. Uh, if it's a no, then it's like, okay, that's just like uh, annoying. So like, I knew that gastro like uh, diarrhea wasn't going to kill me. It was just that it's annoying and it's uh, it's not fun, but, but it's not that bad. So actually I keep going up and and the solution it was uh, to, because you have the this big down suite and and it's not very comfortable to take off like every now and then. So I, I stopped eating because like that, I, I couldn't like, uh, uh, yeah, uh, the diet stop. So I only had the cramps. Um, but, um, but yeah, it was a long, long journey then. Like I is, I was expecting to go much faster in the upper part and, and it was just like uh, very, very, very slow. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Actually, I, I reached the summit that time uh, around midnight, a bit after midnight, and it was a long way down. But um, it was funny that during the way down, like, uh, I was thinking, oh, still, like, we still, like, have a bit more than one week to take the plane back to home. It could be fun to, to go up again, like, just to see, like, uh, how it is and to see how the body can react to see how it is to spend so, so many hours in altitude for several days and, and all these things. So actually on the way down, like uh, just before reaching the, the base camp again, I was just thinking about, uh, about that to go up again. And, um, and yeah, I think I rest like two days uh, or yeah, I went down to the base camp. I rest one day there. Then when one day up to, to the ABC, that is the, the camp in the feet of the mountain, and then actually we didn't have any tents there because uh, we had everything down in, in the Rombuk. But actually we had some friends that they, uh, Adrian Bellinger, Corey, Richards, uh, that they had, um, they, they let us 
to sleep in their uh, mess tent that is in the kitchen and where the food. So we were sleeping there that night and the day after I, I went up again. It was supposed to be the, the best weather ever. It was supposed to be the nicest day of the spring, but it wasn't. So actually I started to climb. I was feeling uh, much better. When I reached the, the, the ridge that that's at 8,300 meters, weather wasn't good. And uh, actually I, I had no radio and, and sat phone. Uh, that's part of uh, what we were talking before, like about the style, like not having any kind of communication that it means that you need to take the decisions over yourself. And um, so uh, I didn't know how fast it was deteriorating the weather, but as before, like it was like, okay, it's only bad weather. It's not going to, to kill me really. So I, I don't have like frostbeads or I don't have like a, a brain edema or a lung edema, so I can keep going. And, um, and that was fine. Actually, the, the climb was uh, much better than the, the, the first time. Um, and then going down, that was a funny thing. Uh, it's, it's very hard to eat when you are there. Like you don't think about eating. You don't think about uh, taking a gel or taking a bar because uh, you are kind of, your mind is floating a bit. Like you are not sharp on, on thinking. And, uh, and going down, uh, I think at around 8,300 meters, I don't know what happened. Like uh, I have a blackout. I, I don't remember for a moment what happened. And I remember to be climbing down the ridge, that is the, the road. And next thing I remember is I'm down climbing in the middle of a phase and I really don't know where I am. Uh, that was in the middle of the night uh, going down and I was really like, okay, I, I have not a clue if I am in the north phase, in the northeast phase, in the south phase, or I'm just in the base camp, like sleeping in my tent, just having a, a nightmare. And, um, and Hopefully it's, uh, the latter, right? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> the thing is like uh, uh, th there was like a snowstorm uh, and I was there and then it's like you start to have these thoughts because it's not fun. Like you are okay, you are very tired. I have been like going on for uh, 30 some hours with nonstop. Uh, I had been drinking like one liter of water in these uh, 35 hours and I have been eating like maybe three, four, five gels in, in, in 20 hours. So like uh, you want to be down, like you want to be back and, and it's not that enjoyable moments. So then you think, okay, if I'm, if I'm resting in the base camp uh, and this is just a, a bad dream, uh, I want to wake up. And then you think, okay, maybe if I jump, uh, I will wake up. But then you say, okay, if I'm in the middle of a phase, if I jump, uh, that will be a very stupid idea to do. Um, so when you start to have these thoughts, then it was like, okay, you know, like I, I just stop here. I wait until, um, uh, day goes back, like until it's some light and then I can see where am I, if I'm in the middle of, uh, the North phase or the South phase, and then I can go back again and, and take the road back. So actually I, I found a, a small, like one meter, um, platform in the middle of the phase and I, I stopped there uh, waiting for that, for the light to come. And with the rest, uh, I think uh, uh, brain started to work better again and, and, and with uh, some rest, uh, I, I was uh, 
realizing actually that I was, I don't know why, but uh, just in the middle of the North base. And then I remember that that 7,600 meters is kind of a, a snow ramp that, that drives you to the ridge again. So I just needed to figure out a way to down climb these three, 400 meters to, to get there and, and, and go back to the road. So that's, that's what I did. And, and then actually it was fun because I arrived to, to the advanced base camp where uh, Sebastian, that's uh, my friend, uh, was waiting for me. And we didn't have much time. It was like, okay, like the, the car is leaving to the airport like in, in seven hours from the airport. <laughs> so we needed to just run back down to the, to, run to the road and just drive straight to Las and, and back home. Killian, you're speaking so nonchalantly about these things that sound just utterly terrifying and painful and not so pleasant. <laughs> I mean, the cramps and the gastro and the blackout and everything. I mean, how were you finding the whole experience in the moment? Is it something that's funny to look back on now? And you have obviously an incredible story from it, but in, in when it was happening, how were you feeling? Well, like climbing big mountains, it, it's, I would say it's fun type two, mostly. Like it's, uh, you, you are suffering a lot when you are there. You are enjoying some very nice moments. Like some moments are wonderful. Like when you are in the ridge uh, and it's uh, the views, like you can see everything around. Like you see Choyu, Lotse, Makalu. Uh, they are mountains that they are a thousand meters and you see them and they are lower and you see like the horizon, it's, it's far and you are alone in the mountain and you are enjoying that moment. That's, that's wonderful. Like that moment, it's nothing that you can compare with, uh, nothing, not win a big race, nothing. It's, it's just like precious. Uh, and I think those moments in the mountains, uh, even if it's like, just like for a few minutes, it uh, it's worth the cost of like that suffering like for 30, 40 hours that you are really on the sheet. <laughs> uh, so yeah, of course. Then when you are back home, you you remember the whole experience and it's like the satisfaction of of uh, of that. And and probably when you are doing something that it's hard. Uh, it's like a race, like if you are pushing hard and, and it's not that you are enjoying when you are like on the pain of running, mm. but then you, if you have a good race, then you are enjoying that you has been training well, you has been like, um, having calm moments in the training and in the race and then like you succeed. So that's, that's where the satisfaction comes from. So in the mountain is the same consequences are not the same of the pain. Of course, like, uh, you are risking your life sometimes, but. But I would say like the satisfaction is the same. But then in the mountains, these moments are just like it's it's nothing that you can compare when you are like having these great moments and just the views or like the feeling of you being alone in a big mountain. It's it's something unique. A really interesting point there is that you know we we talk to a lot of athletes here at Sweat who are you know putting in a lot of effort and feeling that same kind of pain in terms of the endurance effort, but what you're doing is often in such perilous circumstances and, you know, from an outside observer looks incredibly dangerous and scary. And I'm wondering if you think that you have a, a different relationship to fear 
and pain compared with other people or do you feel that when you're up there all of the risks are calculated and you generally feel in control yeah i feel like uh on control most of the time and, and i think that's how you should feel because uh, if you feel that you are taking risks uh then probably like you will die uh very very fast um the thing is like uh I don't think I have a different relation with danger than than other people. Maybe it's more that I'm I'm more used to to these situations. But I would say like if we analyze our life, it's like where is danger? Like it's danger like on when we go when we drive the car and, and sometimes like we get a, a message and we look at it. That's also like a, a dangerous situation or like a, how we eat. Uh, uh, like if it's uh, is something that can make us like to have a, some kind of disease uh, where we live, like if it's pollution, like that's are, are also dangerous. Uh, of course, the the consequence maybe is less visual than if we are climbing a mountain and we fall down and, and we just die, uh, but it's also dangerous. Uh, and then I think it's about analyzing, it's about being humble about uh, your capacities. Like I know, uh, what I'm able to do and what I'm not able to do. And I think when I'm climbing and I'm afraid, it's just a sign that I need to come back to go down and to prepare myself better. And I think it's just to be really aware of those signs and, and try to to listen to it and uh, and always be on the rational side. Uh, in, in high mountains, I would say that emotions are the worst enemy because like if you are not feeling fair, but if you are like, uh, uh, yeah, afraid or not afraid, but if you are like, uh, really paralyzed from, from fear, then you will probably take stupid decisions because like fear is, is controlling you. But in the other side, the same, like if you are having euphoria from like reaching the summit, then you will probably like, uh, take your guard down and like have also take bad decisions. So I think it's important to be always in the rational side when you are climbing uh, in these situations and, and try to, to analyze all the risk. And of course, like situations, sometimes they go out of control and you need to be prepared for that. I think improvisation is a big thing in high mountains. And it's not only that you, you improvise all the time. No, it's like you have been working hard, training, prepare. So if something goes wrong, and it will, you have the, the tools to escape from from that and I guess with your whole childhood and adolescence being spent in the mountains you'd have such a bank of experience that you can pull on when things start to change while you're up there yeah I think like uh, we and, and it's mostly not, not from the childhood but like every time you go to the mountains you you learn something and the bad thing is that mostly you learn when things go bad so it's um yeah I would say the first time you realize that uh, that that's very dangerous is when you lose someone uh, in in the mountain with you. When you re realize that how like a cornice can be dangerous is when one breaks. Uh, when you realize that avalanches is when you get into one. So we are, I think, humans. We we learn from bad moments, and that's the the bad thing. That sometimes to get used to one situation. The only thing you can do is to go to this situation, even if it's, um, yeah, it's risky situation. But uh, if you climb like solo, like if you climb like without rope and you want to feel comfortable and confident climbing that, you just need to keep climbing without rope. 
what means that you are putting yourself in risk a lot, but uh, it's the only way to, to do it somehow. It's not that you will be climbing mountains like uh, in expedition style and then be able to, to go to a mountain and climb in alpine style. Uh, it's, yeah, you need to sometimes just to accept some measures and some risks uh, and just to try to, to deal the, the best with it. I found it quite funny, the scene where you're filming yourself and you're on the way, you, you're doing a, a, an ascension to acclimatize and you're, I think, at about 8,300 and then you just want to go up. But you've told Emily you'll be as safe as possible, but you are feeling so good you just want to go up. And the movie also focuses a bit on some significant losses that have happened for you. So there was Stefan on the Traverse of Mont Blanc range, I think, and then also Ueli, uh, Ueli Steck, the Swiss machine. Um, and there you're speaking about how you decided at the last second to change the route that you were going to ascend. Um, you said the year before you would have gone up and said, it's not too bad, it's not so bad, uh, but you still would have gone. And then the following year, just after you'd heard about Ueli's death, your perception of it was it's not perfect and so you shouldn't be going up. I'm just wondering if there are some other concrete examples that you can think of where having lost someone close to you has changed the way that you've approached things in the mountains. Yeah, I think like the when you deal with a, a situation, a real situation, it, it's it's a lot on the moment. Like it's not something that you can uh, plan in advance how you will feel if you will feel okay with it or not. And of course, uh, when uh, some friends die in the mountain, you start you you rethink if, if what we are doing it's worth it or not. If, if, if it's just stupid like to to take these risks. Um, so yeah, like uh, in 2017 when. I went to Everest uh, actually just before I said that I was in Shoyu in the mountain. So there I was with uh, with Emily. We were climbing together. Uh, and then when we were in Shoyu, uh, we get the call like uh, from from friends that uh, Uli has died in the other side of the mountain in Everest. And uh, it's a shock because like um, it's, uh, it's a friend. It's someone that has been uh, kind of mentoring, that I has been admiring a lot. And just saying, okay, like um, it just it's it's always bad news uh, uh, when you lose a friend, and and even if it's kind of it's never a surprise. I would say it's always sad. You don't expect it, but it's um, yeah, it's the activities we do. They have this risk, uh, and when it comes, is you want to keep on this safer side, so. Actually, ever, uh, when we were in, in Shoyu, Emily had also like a, a big light, a big fall. So it was that plus uh, Uli's accident. When I was in Everest, it was like, okay, I want to push myself here, but I want to push myself on the safer side. The year before, in 2016, I would say that during that expedition, I was taking much more risks. I was like pushing my risk level much higher. Yeah, some years that you want to push higher, sometimes you want to push lower, and that that depends the moment. And of course, like uh, when you lose 
people when you have accidents that sets the bar a bit uh, a bit lower yeah and and in that year before you were with a couple other catalan climbers or jo is it jordi yeah um, it was with uh, jordi tosas and, uh, and seb montas so uh, yeah and, we were like uh, the three together or and it was also bibian bruchet that was uh, in the mountain with us so we were four four climbers and in that ascent jordi had um pace high altitude cerebral edema is that yeah okay so w one question that i had um i know you're very much a purist when it comes to the mountains but after having something go so wrong like that I'm, i know you all made it out fine but it was quite a scary situation and then other mm -hmm. things like really's death just before you still went up everest such a you know big um exposed mountain with no radio and i think in, there was a scene in the movie where emily is quite upset about that and, and about the risks that are involved <laughs> with the project you're doing what was the reasoning behind that uh that sort of confused me a bit i think it's a big difference uh if your goal is to reach the summit uh with all the means or if it's like to to climb the mountain in a in a certain style so actually if you want to reach the summit uh you can like take oxygen take uh, fixed ropes take a porter take uh, uh drags wherever you want uh but that was not my goal uh i wanted to see if i was able to climb the mountain by myself so that means like go without any kind of uh of doping and go without any kind of like oxygen or also like communication and support it's a big thing up there and it makes a big difference it's not the same if you climb like with uh, someone like telling you weather forecast and telling you uh where you are and encouraging you or if you are up there by your own and for me it was about that and and that's that's out of the question like uh summit is secondary always so that was never on my mind to to change the style uh because of then like it's is not why I climb for I don't climb to reach the summits I climb to to see if I'm able to to do it by myself the, there you spoke about the preparation for the mission to Everest I'd love for you to tell us a bit about what that involved so actually when we think about training we think often in the short term like uh, the last month the last uh, two months before like a, a race or before a goal but uh i think the the important is the big picture it's like the last uh, 10 15 years what has been leading to to be able to to have this preparation and um actually the uh yeah the, the last preparations before everest was uh the ski season i was racing actually we were racing until we left to to nepal uh and i was training home mostly doing like long days out uh, during the morning in the mountains to try to find the same uh, situation. So like climbing, technical climbing, exposure, being alone, days of like 10, 12 hours out. And then in the afternoon, I was doing like uh, running in altitude at uh, six, 7,000 meters uh, and try to do some speed. So like uh, on the treadmill, uh, trying to to go, um, yeah, to do some intervals at, uh, at high altitude. Uh, at a high altitude, is that using a hypoxic tent or something or were you actually 
up high on the mountains doing those? I live in in Norway, so that's at uh, sea level, and uh, and so like uh, when I was training there before, I was using the the tent, so like a, a generator to to simulate the altitude. So I I was putting that at six and seven thousand meters of altitude, and then just before uh, going to Himalayas, we went to to Italy to do a ski mountaineering race, Mezzalama, that is at four thousand meters of altitude. So we were like training a bit there. Mm, okay. And do you think that something like that hypoxic tent is or mask is very specific to what you were doing in Everest or would you or do you use it for training for other events as well that are at lower altitudes? I, I has been uh, trying and, and like doing different protocols. But I don't see the same interest. I actually think it, it works on acclimatizing, but you need to spend a lot of hours. Like to do like uh, 5, 10, 15 hours of training on altitude, it's better you don't. Uh, like to acclimatize for Everest, I think I spent uh, in the month prior to going there like 200 hours on the tent. And that, that, makes, that starts to make a difference. But um, if not, it's not worth it. And for um, low altitude, I don't think it works. Like, I haven't seen any difference on training in the tent or without the tent for, like, uh, races up to 4,000 meters. Okay. And is, is the idea with the tent that you're in a hypoxic state and generating more red blood cells, which will help at altitude? Thanks for tuning in to Sweat Elite Podcast episode number 30, interview with Kilian Jornet, part one. We hope you enjoyed it. Part two will be released next week, dives a little bit deeper into his training. So stay tuned by hitting subscribe on your podcast player, and you'll be notified as soon as it comes out. Until then.